listening to an episode from our Design Thinking Season, a series of conversations with people talking about their ideas and experiences with the design thinking process, universal design and inclusive design. Hello, I'm Otto. And I'm Rory. We're talking with Morris Knightley, Entrepreneurial Specialist at UCD Innovation Academy. You're very welcome to the podcast, Morris. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself to begin? Certainly. Thank you for inviting me. Nice to be here. Uh, I've been working here at UCD in the Innovation Academy for almost nine years now. My own background uh, is uh, primarily in hospitality, tourism and food. Uh, I've worked in, in, uh, I I added it up recently, I worked in 23 different countries in my life uh, in in some shape or form. So, uh, but always in uh, retail as well. And I suppose my main claim to fame uh, was that uh, I was one of the founding directors of O'Brien's Irish Sandwich Bars back in the uh, late 80s, early 90s. And we, we grew that business as a franchise to uh, over 300 st- stores in 10 different countries. Uh, and that was a great experience. What is design thinking to you? Right. Well, in a nutshell, I suppose, I've been fascinated by design thinking probably for the last 10 or 15 years now. And actually, one of, one of the reasons for coming here to UCD, to the Innovation Academy, was because I found uh, through, through looking around and trying to see where, where are the interesting places doing stuff like this in Ireland, I, I came across the Innovation Academy. And I think what, I, what fascinates me most about design thinking is I think that naturally... As human beings, we come up with ideas really quickly. We're rewarded for being quick thinkers. We're rewarded as a species. We've survived because of our quick thinking and our ability to come up with ideas really quickly. But sometimes, and particularly in innovation and and entrepreneurship and product design and that, sometimes we have to slow down a little bit. And our, our first idea isn't always our best. And we tend to fall in love with our first ideas and we get a bit hooked onto them and we, we can't change them because we're, we're, we're too invested in our ideas. And I think what design thinking does is it teaches us to step back from that a little bit. It doesn't start with ideas. It starts with really understanding the problem that you're trying to solve, understanding the user that you're designing for the customer and putting yourself really into their shoes and really understanding what it is to be them. And that's, I think, the essence of design thinking for me, that empathy piece, that putting yourself into the shoes of another and to really, really understand what life is like for them, what challenges they're facing, what pains they experience, what would be gains for them, and to really truly understand, understand that makes our ideas much more effective. Our, the solutions that we design will be a much better fit, I believe. Entrepreneurship seems to have become intrinsically linked with design thinking and design sprints, hackathons and jams. Why this connection? Uh, I think that there's a lot of, lot of talk about all this at the moment. Some, and I think a lot of it sometimes can be smoke and mirrors. You know, everybody wants to have a ta- hackathon. And I'm not even sure we really understand what a hackathon is. Uh, so let's not get too bogged down in the words. I think the principle of it is, is, is really what's important. I think design thinking is a great problem-solving methodology. And depending on the stage that an entrepreneur is at, whether they're pre-startup, startup, whether they're just established, 
or whether they've already uh, become a, a small or medium enterprise, or whether they're looking for growth opportunities. I think this mindset of design thinking is really closely aligned to the mindset of an innovator. So entrepreneurs are innovators. And this, uh, what I think design thinking methodologies can help us to do is to become more curious, to ask better questions, to be better observers, to be better networkers, to join dots that maybe haven't been joined together before, to see patterns where we haven't seen patterns before. And I think that makes us better uh, combinational thinkers, associational thinkers, and again, the quality of ideas that we come up with or the solutions that we design will be better because of that. So I think design thinking for entrepreneurial thinking Put those together, they're powerful tools, I think, for, for entrepreneurs. So I would strongly advise anyone uh, aspiring entrepreneurs or otherwise is to take advantage. And if you see an opportunity to be involved in a design sprint or a hackathon or a design thinking uh, workshop or something, go for it. Because it really is a great tool in your toolbox. And it's something that you get better at. We liken it in the Innovation Academy to being a little like a musical instrument. You know when a kid starts off playing a violin and it sounds squeaky and squawky and they get better and better and better. This design thinking methodology kind of becomes a little bit kind of who you are, the way you think, your mindset, and you become fluent at it or you become accomplished like a musician would on his, on a, on his or her instrument. Is it primarily uh, digital enterprises that are using these tools that you're talking about, or is like other people using it, um, other industries? Yeah, I think that, uh, um, the history of design thinking, uh, st it started off really as a product design methodology. Uh, so really, you know, physical products. It's developed more over the years now. It's around probably since the mid-90s, but it's developing all the time. And I think it's becoming fairly ubiquitous really and becoming more and more common for designing services or processes or um, uh, procedural challenges. Uh, you know, the most popular undergrad elective in Stanford, school, Stanford College now is a module called Design Your Life, which applies the design thinking principles to your life or to your career. And we, we run a, a module very similar to that over in the Innovation Academy as well, uh, designing your life, designing your future. So I think that more and more we're seeing design thinking being used, not just in digital or in tech or in physical product design, but in an awful lot more. Uh, one thing that we've been involved in at the in Academy now for the last few years is the pub public sector innovation uh, initiatives, which is happening across all pub public sector in Ireland. And we've been working with the Department of Health, the Blood Transfusion Service, uh, the uh, Environmental Protection Agency, Department of Justice. And you, we're seeing design thinking being used in all of these organizations now to again anchor themselves in the problems that their users or their customers or their clients are experiencing and trying to design better solutions from those using the design thinking methodologies. So it's great to see that it is uh, becoming, uh, it's becoming part of, it's almost becoming cultural, I think, to put ourselves into the shoes of the user before we start designing. You know, in the past, you, we've all experienced this in public service, especially in the public sector. This campaign is planned 
by the powers that be in Dáil Éireann or the government department. And then a huge amount of money is invested in it and it's rolled out across the country and it doesn't really work. It ends up on the scrap heap because it, it doesn't really fit. People don't engage with it for some reason. But the thinking about right now about putting yourselves into the shoes of the user before you design solutions for them is kind of transforming really how things are done, both internally and externally, internally in the public sector and companies like that as well. But we're seeing all the major employers as well in Ireland, the PwCs and IBMs, and design thinking is very much part of who they are. Yeah, can anyone develop a design attitude and how can a newbie start out? Yeah. That's, that's great, because uh, I think design attitude, that's a very interesting turn of phrase. Or design mindset, I suppose, is another way of looking at it. And yes, I believe we can. If we go back to what I was saying at the beginning there, which is sort of the, the innovator's DNA uh, from, from a fa fantastic book by Professor Clayton Christensen of Harvard's, this DNA piece I'm talking about, this curiosity, this questioning, this listening ability, this asking questions. Uh, I think that as great designers, great innovators, or great entrepreneurs, we should actually listen more than we speak. I think that's one of the differences between people who do this really well. As Judge Judy would say, you have two ears and one mouth for a reason. And I've noticed great innovators and great entrepreneurs and great designers are constantly asking questions of people they meet. They're not selling. They're not selling something. Uh, 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 the difference between these two characters, I believe, is one is, is trying to sell you something all the time. And if you go to a networking event or something, you meet these people who are trying to sell you something and they kind of back you into a corner and you're like, get me away from this person, you know. But there's a different type of person who asks questions and they're interested in your opinion and they want to know what you know. So they're constantly picking people's brains and then they're storing all that somehow. Either they're writing it down or maybe they're going back and making notes after the event and they're, they're constantly journaling as well or mind mapping and they're keeping all these insights that they come across from various different people and things that they read and things that they research and they're keeping those little nuggets and those little insights. And they don't quite know why. It's not connected perhaps to what they're doing today. But later, these things are in their minds and they connect them together in, at unexpected times. When opportunities arise, they say, I remember somebody who I met a few years ago who told me something about something. And I'll go back over my notes and I'll find it. And you know what? I'm going to call him, that guy I met five years ago. And I'm going to find out what he's doing now and what he's thinking about that is now. And it's that curiosity and that boldness to, to really ask questions and to listen to people is, is, I think, something we can all develop. There's a little one we do I was going to mention to you, a little challenge that we do in the Innovation Academy. And when we present it to the students, they think we're kind of crazy. And what we send them out to do is to go out and try to be rejected. We call it the rejection challenge. So in the days before COVID and we had screens and everything, we used to say to the students, ask the bus driver for a high five, right? That's one thing you could do. And usually they'll say, get lost, you know? 
So it's uh, or ask someone uh, 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 for directions or ask someone if they'd like to tell you about their last holiday, just random people in the street. And what you're looking for is to be rejected. It's called the rejection challenge. Now, that seems a bit crazy. Why would we get people to do that? Because rejection is part of this. Because people won't always want to be willing to give you information. They won't always be interested in what you have to, to talk about or what you're interested in. And they'll reject you. And they'll say, no, sorry, I'm not interested. And if we get all hurt and bent out of shape about, oh, now I'm terrified. Oh, nobody's interested in what I'm doing. I'm not going to do it anymore. We've hit, a, we've hit a wall. So we've got to get used to rejection. Innovators, entrepreneurs, designers get used to rejection. And that's something we could practice and be brave about and not let it stop us because it's part of the journey and it's part of the game. Can you talk a little bit about the role of the facilitator and what are the benefits that come with having a facilitator facilitate a design sprint? Yeah, I think one of the, the, the main things about this, particularly when we're looking at a short sprint or a, uh, you know, a hackathon of some sort that has a particularly defined amount of time, design thinking as a process, and it could go on forever. You could keep on researching, keep on questioning, keep on empathizing and understanding and never actually do anything. At some stage, you've got to move on and say, okay, I've gathered enough information. I've got to make a decision here. Yeah? And especially in those short sprints and those really uh, fast sort of design thinking hackathons and that, it's really important that you, you move on. And the decision that you've made is fine. It's fine for now. You move on. Uh, better done than perfect, you know? It's, it's not about perfection in a sprint. It's about action. It's about moving on and getting through the process and seeing, because there's a certain flow in it and there's a kind of a, an excitement in it and there's a kind of, the, blood, the blood comes up and there's an adrenaline thing in it. And I think the facilitator's role there is to keep it on track. They're really holding the space. And it's very difficult to be in a sprint as a participant and also trying to manage it. So within organizations, we've seen people who are saying, yeah, we're, good. we're just going to organize a little sprint here ourselves, and we're all involved. It kind of wanders, and it never finishes, and it doesn't quite uh, hit the mark. So I think having a facilitator who is really just the sort of the timekeeper, the rule keeper, right, folks, we're done, move on. Enough. You, you're... you're, you're uh, where you are is fine now. Let's move on. So it's kind of about rapid prototyping and that as well. And I think the facilitator keeps that pace. And that's, that's sort of uh, important. So it's really holding the space, I, I think. Design thinking can be messy. There's a, a nice little image that you can Google called the design squiggle. And it really does illustrate it well. It's very muddled at the, at the beginning and we're, especially if we have a team of people and we're all researching something different or we're all out questioning different people, it can get kind of confusing at the start. But as we move on through the defined stage and into ideation and prototyping, clarity comes. So I think the facilitator as well reassures people, be mindful of the process, trust the process, it'll be all right, we'll get somewhere, you know, and that's... That's a part of the role of the facilitator, too, I think. 
What do you look for in your own facilitation practice and how do you stay fresh and keep on track? I don't know whether Alan or some of the other teachers would agree with me, but I come, from, as I said, from a hospitality background, so, right? So think about this for a moment. A hospitality situation, you've got a, a whole banqueting room full of people, tables all over the place, and you're kind of keeping an eye on it. How are they doing over there? What's happening with that? They don't look very happy over there. More wine over there, there you know? There's this kind of management of a, of a room or a space. One of my hobbies has always been theatre. Uh, I've, I've treaded the boards a few times badly. I'm a bad actor, but it's fun, you know? So I've been involved in amateur dramatics, and I was in a movie last year for the first time. A real big screen with a couple of lines. I was great fun, really great fun. But for me, it's a bit of a weird link, maybe, is... That sort of hospitality management situation, combined with a kind of an acting and theatrical sort of a thing, kind of goes over to facilitation and teaching. It's to be able to hold a room and manage a room and uh, uh, get the best out of, uh, out of people. Facilitation is a, a combination of theatrics and a little bit enough knowledge to keep, the, keep the show on the road, I suppose. Um, so how sustainable are sprints? If the approach is so productive, why don't we do them all the time? I think we do do it all the time, or we can do it all the time. If we, if we practice design thinking, and remember the analogy I said about uh, practicing the musical instrument and getting more proficient at it. Well, a, a really high-level high, uh, musician doesn't have to think about, I'm changing chords now, or I, I need to, oh, which, which note am I playing? They just do it instinctively. So I think if you can, any chance that you can get to practice design thinking through sprints, hackathons, or whatever else, it becomes a little bit of a mindset. It becomes the way you approach problem solving naturally. So you, you, you don't even have, it becomes instinctive almost. Fluent is another good word for it. So I think that it, it, it can, um, what's, the question was how sustainable are they? I think that they, it's a really good idea that everybody in every organization, everyone in education, everybody that can becomes proficient at this particular methodology because it becomes part of who you are. And that empathy piece, that understanding piece, that really getting into people's shoes before we design product solutions, procedures, or whatever it might be for them, we can only result in, in better, better products and services. So it's that mindset. That piece is sustainable, I think. So any opportunity that you have to practice, take it, because it makes you better at, the, at it eventually. Kind of going off of that, every problem is a little bit different. Do you take a different approach with different problems? And how do you design your design thinking approach? Yeah, I think uh, one of the tricky, but come back to the facilitation piece again, actually comes into that too. I think one of the, one of the tricks perhaps or techniques that we have to be careful of is framing the problem. I think the problems are all different, that of course there are myriad of problems in the world to be solved and always will be. But it's how we frame them and how we kind of structure it from, that gives us a, 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 a springboard to, to design thinking, really. So it's how might we tackle this? What is it like to be that person? What, is the, what are they experiencing? It's that, that real empathy piece. If we can frame it in that, I think the methodology works then. 
But if we're framing a problem with, that we already have a solution in mind, so we're trying to retrofit our idea back into somebody else's problem, that's where we run into difficulties. We're retrofitting, we're going the wrong way around. We have the idea and we're trying to retrofit and make and uh, confirm that there is a problem there that we're solving. And then we get into a falling in love with our idea again and our own internal biases take over and the, and the thing goes off the rails again. So it's framing that initial problem pro correctly, I think, is, is, is tricky um, and takes practice too. Not sure if that answered your question, Otto, but... Uh, where did you get the idea to start O'Brien's? Well, now, I can't, I can't take uh, full credit for that. Uh, the founder of, original founder of O'Brien's uh, was a chap called Brody Sweeney. And Brody now uh, owns and operates another franchise company called uh, Camille Thai that you might have come across. Please order. Try it if you haven't. Sales pitch, thanks. Uh, Brody's a great guy. He had experience in franchising, and he's a real foodie. And uh, coincidentally, he's married to my first cousin, so we've known each other for years. And uh, so O'Brien's was set up as a franchise company, which is a little bit unusual sometimes. Sometimes successful businesses think, this is working really well for us. We, we should franchise it. O'Brien's was kind of different, as is Camille, that it was designed to be a franchise company from the get-go. So that really kind of uh, influenced a lot of, of how decisions that we made. But really, the, the original idea came from, we were observing what was going on around the world. Uh, Starbucks were starting in Seattle. Costa Coffee had just started in Glasgow. Pret-a-Manger had started in, Lond in London. Um, Subway were expanding rapidly all out. They were just coming out of the States, actually, and expanding around the world. And Dublin at the time, and Ireland at the time, we didn't have a coffee sandwich uh, culture like we do now, you know? So we thought that there was an opportunity there. So, for instance, we were the first in Dublin to install uh, cappuccino machines and the sip-through lids that are everywhere now, uh, cappuccino to go and that, were, we were first to do that uh, before the Costas arrived and all the other coffee shops arrived. So it was a very different landscape in Ireland at the time. And I think the it was good timing for a, a quality uh, coffee and uh, sandwich offer, you know. Can you speak a little bit to the role of design thinking in your role with uh, O'Brien's? O'Brien's, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Well, let me tell you a qu one quick one there, Otto. We didn't know what design thinking was because it didn't exist back in the, in the 80s. So... But one thing that we were very conscious of was that we couldn't, in any business, you can't cater for everybody. You can't make everybody happy all of the time. So what we needed to do was we needed to focus in and find who was our ideal customer in O'Brien's. If we were to paint a picture of her or design, you know, really understand her, who would she be? And she was a, a female. She was 28 years of age. Her name was Sharon. She lived in Black Rock and she worked in AIB in town. She read the Irish Times every day and she bought Image magazine once a month. She was one of these people who, who, who shopped in Dunn stores sometimes, or pennies. But when she did, she put it into a Brown Thomas bag. Do you know her? Yeah? You, do you know people like that? So we got to understand her. And we actually had a seat at the boardroom table for Sharon. And whenever we were making a decision or we were think, discussing something, we'd ask, what would she think? 
So we were kind of designing with her in mind. I'll give you one quick example of it. Standard practice in the, in the fast food and uh, uh, convenience food is a, an item called a, a bog-off voucher, as they're commonly called. Buy one, get one free. You've all heard of them. Yeah? We, didn't, we thought Sharon wouldn't like that. She didn't need it. She, was, she didn't need something free. And actually, she probably wouldn't ask for it. But we still wanted her to get those vouchers. So we called, instead of calling it a buy one, get one free, especially for her, with her in mind, we called it a treat a friend on us. And we felt that that fitted her personality and who she was much better than a buy one, get one free. So we were kind of doing design thinking. We didn't know we were, but we were designing with particular users in mind and trying to, to see, well, what would really appeal to that user? What would interest them? So, for instance, we got involved with Happy Heart Week because of Sharon. We, oh, we started selling wraps. We were the first people in Ireland to sell wraps because they, th she, was, she was reducing her, her carbs, so we needed to. We became the sponsors of the Special Olympics because Sharon was a, a, a volunteer with the Special Olympics. So decisions that we made were very closely aligned to who we thought our ideal user was. Well, I think we're going to wrap up there. Thank you for sharing your thoughts and experiences today. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode. The music used is Isa One Supernova from the Agafox label. See the description for links, credits and license information. <laughs>